Jordan con- consciously made this choice to give the public just enough, just enough of his story and kernels of this mythology that they wanted more and more. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Superstar, legend, billionaire, goat, as in greatest of all time. There are so many ways to describe and define Michael Jordan. Millions of words and countless hours of audio and video have been devoted to tracing his life from his childhood in Wilmington, North Carolina, to college at the University of North Carolina, to his six NBA titles with the Chicago Bulls, and his post-playing career as, among other things, one-time owner of the Charlotte Hornets. He's been looked at from a million angles. Johnny Smith, a history professor at Georgia Tech, decided to look at Jordan's record on racial issues, where he was controversial mostly for choosing to avoid controversy. That dichotomy led to Smith's new book called Jumpman, which gets its name from Jordan's apparel brand, but can also refer to the delicate dance Jordan has done when it comes to race. I really enjoyed thinking about one of the great sports figures of our time in a different way than you might be used to. Here's our conversation. Johnny Smith, obviously, Michael Jordan is somebody that a lot of words have been written about over the years. What made you feel like you had something uh, different to say? Yeah, well, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Chicago in the 1980s and 1990s, and uh, Jordan was very much a part of my upbringing. He was my hero, my idol, and in many ways, the center of my childhood as someone who loves sports, grew up following all the Chicago teams. And of course, Jordan was really the face of the city when I was a kid. And so when I became a historian, I study the history of American sports and American popular culture. I've really thought a lot about the role that prominent athletes have played in our society, particularly black athletes. And I began thinking about Jordan's place in the larger history uh, of American sports. What is his role? as a, a prominent athlete. So I wanted to, to ex- investigate and think more intentionally about Jordan's role as a prominent Black athlete and how discussions about race and our understanding about race through the NBA shaped American culture. You know, race is very much uh, overlooked in his story. But, you know, I think back to the fact that this is a, a young Black man who grows up in the South, Wilmington, North Carolina. It's a, a place that that shapes him. It shapes his worldview. It defines him in many ways. And I think that's been forgotten. So I try to think about, you know, what does it mean for him to become known as this great American hero? You know, what does it mean that writers were repeatedly saying that he transcended race, which, of course, is part of the mythology around Jordan? So in Jumpman, I'm doing two things. One, I'm telling the, the story of Jordan's rise in American culture. But I'm also telling the story of how when he was pursuing his first championship between the 1990 and 1991 season, there's growing pressure for him to use his platform, to use his voice 
to speak out in favor of civil rights, to talk about social issues, and to be a leader in ways that made him very uncomfortable. Toward the end of the book, you have uh, Bill Roden, the, the columnist for New York Times. You quote him as saying about Jordan, he reveled in confrontation except when it came to confronting racism. Do you feel like that was kind of maybe a, a thesis statement of sorts for, for your book? I wouldn't dispute what Roden was saying. But what I try to do in the book is not to judge Michael Jordan, but to try to better understand him, understand the choices he made. So let's go back to Wilmington, where Jordan grew up, to understand him better. When he was a teenager, about 14 years old, he's in high school, uh, Laney High, and it's an integrated school. And he encounters some real racial hostility from white kids who have learned from their parents that we don't want these black kids in the school. And on several occasions, some white kids call him the N-word. One time, Jordan gets in a fight with a white boy in a baseball field, and his mother scolds him and tells him, you know, violence is not the answer. You can't carry around all that anger. So Jordan is internalizing these messages, right? What does it mean when a white person calls you the N-word? Well, they're saying that you're inferior. You are less than me as a white person. Jordan rejects that. And he decides that he's going to channel that anger, that frustration into purpose, into productivity. And it takes place on the court and on the baseball field. He makes this conscious choice to channel that frustration into the world of sports where he's going to prove that he's not inferior to anybody, that he is going to be the best, that nobody can constrain him or place limits upon him. And so this is what I call this this moment where Jordan defies the great white lie of black inferiority. Jordan was famously, is famously, somebody who remembers every slight. You know, not making the varsity as a high school player early on to coaches or whoever didn't believe in him, whatever. I guess it's it's silly to think that he would not remember and internalize and try to overcome those slights that you mentioned where, you know, kids were calling them names in school. So when Jordan becomes an NBA player with the Chicago Bulls in the 1980s, he makes this decision that his focus is going to be on building his, his business relationships with these corporations as a spokesperson. Now, we should keep something in mind. That was a major racial breakthrough. There was no demand from corporate America to build an entire campaign around a black basketball player the way that Nike did in 1984-1985. That was a, an incredible accomplishment, and Jordan recognizes that. He recognizes that the majority of the consumers out there, they're white people. And so he crafts a public image around colorblindness this idea that race is insignificant. And he does not acknowledge publicly his past battles with racism as a youth in North Carolina. When reporters ask him, on the rare occasions they did ask him about race, have you encountered any racial barriers in your pursuit to become a great NBA basketball player? And Jordan would say no. His emphasis was on this idea that America is a meritocracy, that, that sports is the ideal meritocracy. What matters is how hard you work, right? And I think that idea of industriousness is also rooted in his experience as a Southerner. You know, there's this idea about 
individuality, individualism, not necessarily that Southerners um, are trying to be nonconformist, but rather individualism in the sense of self-reliance. And I see that in Jordan on and off the court, right? It's why when Phil Jackson, his coach, tells him, hey, we're going to install this triangle offense, which means you're going to have to give up the ball more. Jordan rejects it because he believes his destiny is, t is tied to him being in control at all times. It's the same thing with the way he protects his image. He does not want to be bound to any social movement, any social cause, any political organization. So he rejects that too. I think some of it also, it sounds like from some of what you wrote, comes from his background in the country versus the city. And also, I think from his parents, you have a couple of quotes in there that, you know, his dad, who he famously loved very much and and was devastated when his dad was murdered. But his dad was the kind of guy who you could talk to for an hour and you never learn anything about him. So it sounds like he kind of grew up in a culture, maybe, of not giving so much of yourself away. Exactly. I think so. You know, Jordan would say after he retired that he had this mystique. And that's the, the title of the preface of my book. And I talk about how Jordan... Con consciously made this choice to give the public just enough, just enough of his story and kernels of this mythology that they wanted more and more. But, you know, for Jordan, the way he was able to fuel the interest uh, in his story was to feed the highlight machine, right? These short clips that we would see on SportsCenter or on NBC of these spectacular plays that was the way that he positioned himself as this great athlete, as an entertainer. And so what happens, though, I think, though, after he wins his first title, is that more and more reporters, they want more than what he's giving. They're asking more personal questions. They're asking more political questions. And they're asking him to do more than just smile like he would on the front of a Wheaties box and be this a cardboard cutout version of himself, right? And so I think that that becomes difficult for Jordan. And ultimately, he becomes disillusioned with fame. You know, after the 91 season, this was the biggest audience in the history of the NBA Finals. More than 70 countries worldwide in this emerging satellite age. Hundreds of millions of people around the world, they're watching Michael Jordan. And so I think that changes the way he sees himself because the demands are unlike anything we've ever seen before. He's undoubtedly the most famous athlete in the world, the most famous American in the world at that time. And the, the like you talked about the demands on him. You know, you illustrated in a couple of places things that I guess would be obvious if you're in it, but maybe not so obvious if you're not. Like Make-A-Wish Kids, the, he has hundreds of requests of kids who like the last thing they want to do on earth is meet Michael Jordan. And you tell this story about how he meets this one kid just before a game and then turns around and says, well, like, how am I supposed to play basketball now? You know, one of the stories that I told that you mentioned there is I wanted to show the warmth that that was those were the most sincere moments, I think, that reporters saw from him off the court is when he was engaging those kids. He didn't rush those interactions. He took his time with the children and their families. He brought them into his world and made them feel special. And I think that was a gift of his. That was a real uh, talent for making those connections. But I also think that when I think about my own youth as a kid who grew up in Chicago, who wanted to be like Mike, like so many of us of that age, 
I, I realize as a historian now, looking back on that period, how Jordan was the first athlete where marketers used children in commercials to soften his image, to make him more endearing, um, and to make parents say, we like Michael Jordan. Yeah, you can put his poster up. He is a good role model. So I try to show throughout the book how different corporations, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Chevrolet, and Gatorade, they they all use kids in these commercials. And I think the best example is the Gatorade ad from 1991, the Be Like Mike commercial. I think it's significant for a couple of reasons. Number one is that when we see Jordan on the court and he's surrounded by all these kids, boys and girls, kids of all races and ethnicities, the Gatorade and, and the NBA, they're positioning Jordan as this unifying force. He brings people together in a time of divisiveness. And um, a time too, though, when America's population is becoming increasingly diverse, right? And basketball is a global game, but it's also America's democratic game where everyone belongs on this basketball court because of Michael Jordan. I think it's a powerful message that's being conveyed by the NBA and also by Jordan's corporate partners. There's a flip side to that too, though, because as you talk about in the book, and I had sort of forgotten about parts of this, you know, he does these, he does these commercials with Spike Lee. That's sort of the, the thing that really makes the Air Jordans take off in a lot of ways. And it becomes the best-selling shoe, you know, in the history of shoes, basically. But then basically these stories start coming out about whether kids have been killed for their Air Jordans. And you talk about how that probably was overblown in the moment, but it certainly put some pressure on Jordan to say, to try to answer those critics who are saying, basically, these, this money you're making off these shoes is causing all this violence. What are you going to do about that? I think that's the moment, 1990 when Jordan starts to retreat into himself and he feels like he can't win because his whole thing is, I'm going to be the role model. Well, what does that mean? I'm going to set good examples. I'm going to be a hard worker. I'm going to tell kids not to use drugs or alcohol or tobacco. I'm going to go to schools and tell them to stay in school and to read and listen to their parents and um, all those things. Those are all these uplifting messages. That's the role that Jordan is comfortable playing. But, he is playing at a time in which Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the country. It's plagued by great violence in predominantly black neighborhoods. And it's also a time in which the country at large is alarmed by uh, violent crime in inner cities. So this famous story that's covered by Sports Illustrated, it's a cover story, your sneakers or your life. Uh, is focused really around Jordan and this idea that there is a uh, unconscionable number of muggings and killings where black teens are assaulting each other for these Air Jordan sneakers. And so what I try to point out is that this was a sensational story that was tied to these ideas of black on black crime, which is a myth. Uh, most crime as we know it is crime that takes place with people who are living in the same community as those that they um, attack. So it's intra-racial crime in a segregated country. It makes sense. Uh, no one was asking whether or not these things were happening in the suburbs. And the point is that there was no real concrete data to show us how many kids were being mugged and killed 
for Air Jordan sneakers? Why was the blame being placed on Jordan? And why wasn't there a conversation around the fact that, you know, far more automobiles were being stolen uh, in the inner cities than shoes, but no one was telling Michael Jordan to stop uh, endorsing Chevrolet uh, when they had just released the Chevy Blazer. What I try to do is, is walk the reader through the origins of this hysteria, talk about how it's tied to race and the increasing pressures from Michael Jordan, who's being hailed as transcending race. And yet these critics are saying, well, you're the great black role model and these black kids want to be just like you. You bear some responsibility for this instead of having a larger conversation about the, the structural inequalities uh, and how segregation and poverty was creating this impetus for young kids, black and white, to want these shoes that became uh, representative symbols of being cool, of having status. There was another decision that Jordan made around the same time, 1990, that I think becomes the thing that I think critics of his bring up the most. People here in the South, uh, certainly here in North Carolina, where I'm based, will remember the 1990 Senate race between Jesse Helms, the no, kind of notorious arch conservative, and Harvey Gantt, who had been the mayor of Charlotte, had, had integrated Clemson University, great civil rights credentials. Jordan, of course, being from North Carolina, uh, being the star player at UNC in the 80s, was asked to endorse Harvey Gantt in this race and did not do it. And along the way somewhere, you kind of trace the murky origins of this quote, but along the way it appears he does say that the reason why he did not endorse Gantt is that Republicans buy shoes too. So this is a really interesting story, I think. And I think uh, chronology is really important understanding it. So this is in 19, the fall of 1990. That's when the election takes place. Um, his mother, Dolores Jordan, was a Harvey Gantt supporter. She wanted Michael to endorse him. I don't think she pressured him, but she asked him. And it's a little unclear exactly who in the Gantt campaign reached out to David Falk, who was Jordan's agent at that time. Falk was very protective of Michael, didn't want him to get involved in any kind of political conversation or endorsement. But if we think about the chronology, it's in May of 1990 that this Sports Illustrated story breaks about the sneaker murders. Then shortly after that, Jordan the Bulls, they lose Game 7 in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Detroit Pistons. Jordan is furious. Uh, he's not sure if he's ever going to win a championship. Later that summer of 1990, Jesse Jackson and Operation Push in Chicago organize a boycott of Nike. And Jesse Jackson pressures Jordan, says, look, you know, Nike has a lot of black endorsers, athletes like you as the face of the company, but they don't hire black executives. You know, Nike's relationship with uh, black America is transactional. They're just selling shoes they're not really doing anything to lift up the black community. You know, I need your help, Michael. This is what Jesse Jackson is telling him. Jordan doesn't want any part of this, but this is another moment where there is pressure from the black community on Jordan to take some kind of political stand. But this time it's against the company that he works for, that he endorses. November or probably, you know, uh, October of 1990 at some point, Sam Smith uh, supposedly asked Jordan about this Senate race back home in North Carolina. What do you think about it? Uh, it's a very heated race. It's the most important Senate race of the election season. 
And Jordan supposedly said, you know, he's not going to get involved and quips Republicans buy shoes, dismissing it. Okay. So if we think about that chronology about what's happening, Jordan is feeling this weight about being asked to take stands and he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. It was not part of how he saw himself. I think that's really important. One of the points I write about in the book is that Jordan comes from a different generation than those black athletes of the 60s who were willing to take stands to use their voice. You know, Barack Obama talks about this difference between the Moses generation, Martin Luther King's generation, the generation of civil rights activists who protested and marched and made great sacrifices for black freedom in America. And the generation that followed, the Joshua generation, the generation that Jordan belonged to, that benefited from the sacrifices of those who came before them. But that generation, the Joshua generation, they didn't necessarily identify with protest. You know, they identify with this idea of, you know, you are going to carve your own path and make breakthroughs. And for Jordan, that was all about the business world. He was determined to break through in corporate America. And the other thing I think to keep in mind, too, at this moment in 1990, when he's being asked to endorse Harvey Gantt, Americans on the whole are withdrawing from political affairs in the 1990s. There is less engagement in, in the communities. There's no unified social movement in black America, unlike, say, in the 60s with the civil rights movement and the black power movement, which black athletes really identified with. Jordan doesn't identify with any kind of movement. So I don't think he sees himself as part of something larger. But, you know, as critics would say, when you have a platform, what you say matters and what you don't say matters as well. And I think for a lot of black folks, particularly in North Carolina, they felt like he did not live up to his responsibilities. When we come back, Johnny Smith talks about how Michael Jordan was a leader and how he wasn't. You know, there's no stories about times when Jordan puts his arm around one of his teammates who's struggling, right, or gives him a pep talk or, you know, there's none of that. He was not someone who knew how to build personal relationships. That and more I had on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Johnny Smith. There were many other things that you write about that I'd sort of forgotten that I never even think about being like there being like a Michael Jordan angle, basically. But something you you mentioned that I just was vaguely in the back of my memory 
was when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 1991. There was apparently some serious concerns among Jordan's teammates that Saddam Hussein was going to come after him as like the most famous American. And, yeah. and that just seems insane to me at the time, but it speaks to, I guess, just how famous and important he was in that moment. Right. Yeah. You know, that those quotes come from Sam Smith's book, The Jordan Rules. You know, he was the reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and I'm sure he talked to Craig Hodges and Horace Grant about, well, what's going through your minds during this game? Um, it was right before a game with the Orlando Magic. The Bulls were on the road, and they got the news about the the, um, the war breaking out. And Michael had a brother in the armed forces, and so he was really distracted, concerned about his, his brother having to go to fight in this war. And it was clear Jordan played terribly that night. But in the aftermath of the game, there was a columnist in one of the Orlando newspapers who talked about how important Jordan was, that him – the fact that Jordan just went out on the court, played, and entertained America, that people could watch him play basketball and provide this diversion at a moment of incredible stress and anxiety and worry, uh, that he played an important role for America. And, of course, what does Jordan say? He's asked about, you know, what do you think about the war? And Jordan's view is uh, echoes his ideas about American exceptionalism. We're going to destroy the Iraqi forces. And we're going to end this war quickly, and we must do whatever is necessary. And so he echoes American foreign policy in this moment. He positions himself as a great patriot, which only further enhances his appeal. He's not saying, you know, war is wrong. We shouldn't have a role in this conflict. doesn't say anything like that. Um, and so I think it's important to think through what it is Jordan had to say about this war. Uh, and then to the other point that you're raising here. Jordan is an important symbol of America in that moment in 1991. And I think part of that is that African-American athletes uh, came to embody democracy. And this was a long uh, history dating back really to uh, the 30s when Jesse Owens and other black track stars represented America, the significant number of black track and field stars, to Cassius Clay going to the Rome Olympics in 1960. You know, on the international platform, black athletes have been propped up by the government as being representative of democracy and equal opportunity and fair play. And of course, the other side of that is the hypocrisy that for in, in the age of segregation, those black athletes are coming back to a segregated country. So, you know, I think that Jordan, though, in this post-civil rights era, he's being hailed as a great American hero, not a great black American hero. And try, I try to point out in the book how, you know, his race really gets erased from the narrative around his ascendance. And he's held up, though, as the, as the face of America. I wonder if he felt like the success on the court depended on those decisions he made off the court in the sense that the less controversial he could be in his, you know, off court life, the more he could sort of play it down the middle. It gave him the, I don't know, energy, freedom, whatever it is to be the best basketball player he could be. Yeah. I think you're onto something there. It's, it's about avoiding distractions. You know, he talked a lot about um, in The Last Dance that I had tunnel vision. You know, that's why I didn't – he's saying that's why I didn't get involved in any of these 
other debates off the court. I didn't see myself as a leader uh, when it came to uh, political activism or social activism. And so I think for him, he got to a point where he was being pulled in so many directions that he basically just said, I'm not going to engage any of that. Right. And so it's interesting that in that season, the 90 season, at one point, he's real frustrated. The Bulls have lost a game. He has doubts about whether or not the GM, Jerry Krause, has constructed a winning roster. And he's just venting in his locker room. And he says something to the effect of, you know, I'm tired of being used. I'm being tired of being used by the league, by this organization, by the press, by everybody. And he basically says that he's looking forward to getting out of the NBA in a couple of years. Now, what's interesting, of course, as he does get out of the NBA in a couple of years, he does leave briefly. He retires after the 93 season. But it tells us something that at a very young age, he's like 27 years old this time. Boy, he is feeling the heat. He is feeling the pressure to live up to public expectations. And so I think for him, again, that's why he kind of retreats into himself and that he wants to focus as much as possible on what's happening on the court. But, but... When he, the more successful he becomes, the greater the commercial opportunities are. And he also wants to pursue those avenues, and he does. It also feels kind of like the velvet trap. He made these decisions and did these things, you know, voluntarily. Nobody made him sign those deals with Nike. And obviously, they all brought him this immense wealth, fame, power. But it does seem like he gave up something of himself to get there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that stood out to me in watching the last dance, there's not a lot of joy in the stories coming from his teammates. You know, you hear over and over from his teammates and his rivals, how competitive he was, how determined he was. Uh, and that he was always on the attack when he stepped on the court and he did not relent. And that made him special as a competitor. But you know, there's no stories about times when Jordan puts his arm around one of his teammates who's struggling, right, or gives him a pep talk or, you know, there's none of that. He was not someone who knew how to build personal relationships. He could build professional relationships. He would get in your ear. He would get in your grill. And he would demand the absolute best from you. He would push you. And he made his teammates better. There's no question. But I think there was a cost. And look at his relationship with Scottie Pippen today. Pippen watched that documentary, felt like Jordan had a role in marginalizing him in the story. And it reminded Pippen and a lot of the Bulls players the way they always felt marginalized being around the being around Jordan. You know, he was always the center of attention, which of course it makes sense. And it makes sense the documentary would focus on him. But they felt, I think, diminished in some ways in that film. And they they point the finger at him because Jordan's production company shaped that film. Now, the director would say, well, Jordan never interfered with uh, the production. But um, I think that for a lot of those players, particularly Pippen, they felt like, you know, he just mistreated us. You quote him near the end of the book as saying it was an interview from when he was playing and somebody had asked him about politics and getting more involved in all that stuff. And he said, well, I'll, I'll deal with that more after I retire. And I think what you illustrate in the book is that he has done that to a certain extent, but he's certainly not jumped in with both feet. Uh, why, why do you think that is? I think it makes him uncomfortable. 
I don't think he feels equipped or prepared to lead these conversations around race and social conflict. Um, if you notice, in the times he has uh, since retirement, particularly as owner of the, the Charlotte NBA franchise, when he's made these big donations to black causes or black organizations, it's done with a press release written by someone else. It's not him holding uh, a press conference where he's talking about what he thinks and what he feels. We don't ever see him expressing his authentic feelings about the pain that he shares in writing in these press releases. You know, he's talked about how, you know, police brutality, it, ups, it, it makes him angry, right? Racism makes him angry. We read that. And I think this is what Bill Roden was saying back, you know, when he wrote his book many years before this, that we never saw that side of Jordan. He didn't want to reveal it. And so I've seen a few interviews, maybe I can count like maybe a couple where he's talked about this, but you can tell that he's very deliberate in choosing his words. He's very careful. He's always been that way in manicuring his image. And so on the one hand, we cannot dismiss, we cannot dismiss the incredible contributions he has made, tens of millions of dollars to um, black college students at historically black colleges and universities, to civil rights groups, to black journalist groups. You know, that commitment means something and it contributes to real change. So we can't overlook that. But I think there is a segment of Americans out there who will always wish that Jordan gave them more. The crux of it to me is that on the court, he's this incredibly confident being. He's willing to dominate. He kind of bent the game to his will in so many ways. And yet off the court, he doesn't do that. And I wonder if that's just a difference in your job and your life, or is it, you know, some sort of compartmentalization? I guess that's kind of part of the puzzle to figure out, right? I think for Jordan, he wants to be in control. Like he talked about this, you know, he bends the game to his will. And Phil Jackson said that for Jordan, he was the kind of leader who led by example. He would get in your face, like we were talking about earlier, and chew you out if you weren't doing what you're supposed to on the court. But he didn't give rah-rah speeches to the team in the huddle before a game. And, you know, he wasn't that kind of player. He felt like the best thing he could do to push everyone around him was to compete at the highest level, to lead by his example. But I don't think he knew what the example was he was supposed to provide off the court when it came to these conversations. And so I think that's a very difficult thing for him. He understood charity. He understood his power in economic terms. And so I think it goes back to this idea of racial uplift through economic development. You know, I think that was what he saw his role was. And Magic Johnson was the same way. They both subscribed to that same philosophy as players turned uh, major league sports owners, right? That for them, they never talked about these things. Magic Johnson was the same way. He never talked about racism when he was playing for the Lakers in the 1980s. He didn't talk about politics. And so they cultivated... Uh, this goal that they were going to set examples 
for black youth through their success on the court and athletics and the major contracts. So they really tied this idea of heroism to wealth. Do you think it worked? Do you think that their philosophy filtered down to the the next generations? I mean, do people now, young people have a different understanding of success now? And the other part of that, do white people have a different understanding of black people given what Jordan became? Okay, there's a couple parts to that. Let's answer the last question first. One of the things I argue in the book is that despite the fact that Jordan had millions of white fans in America, I don't think there's real evidence that shows he changed the way white people thought about black people. He was positioned as being a quote-unquote exceptional black man. In the book, I cite polls that indicate that in 1990, when Jordan is this huge star and being hailed as a figure who transcends race – According to these polls, shows white people have stereotypical views of black people as being lazy, more prone to, to crime, to being less patriotic. You know, all of those negative stereotypes still existed. Jordan's popularity did not change the way many white people saw black people. Now, part of that, of course, is the fact that the majority of images of young black men that are being distributed uh, on the television and news. It's presenting black men as criminals. Jordan, on the one hand, is supposed to be the face of the city um, that sort of sanitizes uh, the the city's reputation and tries to make people forget about uh, these racial tensions and the way the media presents other black young men. So I think that it's questionable how much Jordan was able to educate white people about black history, black experiences, black culture. You know, you could buy Air Jordan shoes and the jersey of a black man, but that didn't mean you knew what it was like to walk in his shoes. I think that's the point that I'm trying to make. As far as your other question, um, in the long run, did Jordan's philosophy of self-help and racial uplift through economics work? Well, some critics would say that he could have been outspoken and taken advantage of his platform and still been a successful endorser. I think that's questionable on the one hand, because if he had been militant and outspoken, perhaps he never gets those contracts to begin with. On the other hand, and I'm not trying to hedge here, but I'm trying to really think through this, those commercials that made him famous with Nike were with Spike Lee. And if folks remember, in 1989, Spike Lee directs and stars in his film Do the Right Thing. And the public reaction from a lot of white critics was that this film was a film that was going to produce more racism and antagonism between black folks and white folks. And people who went and saw it were going to get so angry that it was going to provoke race riots in America. And uh, writers described Spike Lee as being a racist and a black nationalist. And now he's Michael Jordan's friend. All that was written about Spike Lee and Nike didn't walk away from Spike Lee. They didn't stop making those commercials. And of course, Jordan was more valuable than Spike Lee. Jordan never identified with uh, what can be described as Lee's more militant politics. But my point is, I'd be willing to bet that Nike would stand by Jordan. Now, whether McDonald's would have stood by Jordan, I don't know. It's a different company with different corporate culture. Chevrolet, Coca-Cola, again, it's hard to say. 
in the long run, what we know is what Jordan did. And what Jordan did is he chose to avoid any kind of controversy, alienating white America in order to maintain his prestige and his power with corporate America to accumulate great wealth. In the long run, he was able to build unprecedented wealth for an American athlete, unprecedented wealth for a black man in America, and he would later use that wealth to contribute, as we discussed earlier, to civil rights groups, to black college students and other groups as well. And that is meaningful work. Those are meaningful contributions. So I think if you were to ask him, would you do it differently? I think he would say no, because he feels good about the contributions he's making today. I have one last question. In the last, you know, six or eight years, there's been some thought that, uh, Michael has been unseated as the greatest player in NBA history by LeBron James. What is your opinion on that? (laughs) Oh, man. It's interesting. This question gets brought up a lot. Who is the GOAT? My instinct here is to give you an answer that's not necessarily cerebral, but comes from the heart and the gut. And that's that Michael's the greatest of all time. Because when I was growing up, I'd never seen anybody like him. It was as if Jordan invented a new move every time he stepped on the court. He was unlike anything that we'd ever seen before. And so he holds a special place in our hearts. That, I think, is the power of The Last Dance. And even the film Air is it's the nostalgia for a certain generation. And we hold on to that. We hold on to those feelings. I also think that something to be said that, you know, you hear from uh, men who are my age or older who are Jordan fans, they'll say that, you know, the game was... Uh, more competitive back in Jordan's day. The guys were tougher and uh, the defenses were harder to score on and on and on and on. And today, you know, it's easier to score and everybody shoots threes and you hear all this. And I think it says more about us uh, as fans and this generational tension that exists about how we in different generations of men in particular want to proclaim that our generation was the best generation. But the fact is, Today's NBA is filled with far better players than in Jordan's era. You look at the rosters from top to bottom, the players are more athletic, they're more skilled, they're better shooters, and they can do things that players couldn't do in Jordan's era. It's not to say that LeBron is better than Jordan. I think they're very two very different players. LeBron can do things that Jordan never did. Jordan did things that LeBron can't do. Um, But I think that we should recognize the fact that we are living in this incredible moment right now of of exceptional athleticism and ability, and we should, you know, enjoy it as long as we can. Johnny, that was a very eloquent way to avoid that question. (laughs) (laughs) I realize, listening back to this conversation with Johnny Smith, that we often referred to Michael Jordan in the past tense. That's probably because most of us think of him from his time on the court, and that time has passed. But Jordan is very much alive. He's just 60 years old. And even though many, many people have told his story, there's still a lot to be written. As Smith was talking, I kept thinking about that saying that many people know from the Spider-Man movies, with great power, comes great responsibility. That's not a new idea. A version of it appears in the New Testament, and other versions can be traced back to the first century BC. 
influential people, at least those with a working conscience, have always struggled with how to best use their influence. Some athletes reject the idea of being a role model. Others, like Muhammad Ali, risk their whole careers for principle. Michael Jordan falls somewhere in between. He had, and I'm sure still has, endless requests for his time and thoughts and money. It's a puzzle that from the outside feels nearly impossible to solve. Jordan absolutely could have done more for racial justice in America. He still can. But that is one thing that the rest of us have in common with him. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Joshua Lee Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on our website. Just go to wfae.org slash podcast slash southbound. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.